Welcome to the Westside Investors Network. Win your community of investing knowledge for growth. This is the Real Estate Professionals Investing Podcast for real estate professionals by real estate professionals. This show is focused on the next step in your career, investing. Thank you for listening. And please, if you like our content, rate us on your podcast provider. Just a quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are for educational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any shares or securities, make or consider any investments or take any other action. And now, AJ and Chris Shepard. Welcome back to another episode of the Deal Deep Dive segment on the Westside Investors Network podcast. I'm your host, Trent Werner. In this segment, our featured guests will share their unique stories on a specific deal they've invested in. We will dive deep into finding the deal, financing the deal, writing an offer, and the due diligence. Do us a solid and smash that subscribe button, leave us a rating, and share this episode. And now, let's dive deep. All right. Welcome back to the West Side Investors Network podcast, the Win podcast. Today, we have Zachary Beach with Smart Real Estate Coach. I see Wicked Smart there too. Is that a subsidiary? Oh, Wicked Smart's the company we're actually doing some rebranding over the next X amount of probably if it comes out in January, we may be fully rebranded now as WickedSmartInc.com, but it's coming. So that's kind of what we live by. We fully transferred into living the New England dream of being Wicked Smart. <laughs> I love it. Well, you guys just heard from Zachary here. I'll let him introduce himself, but I'm super excited for our show today. We're discussing a sub two deal that Zachary's done. Zachary, you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. I appreciate you having me on, Trent. I'm Zach Beats. I'm the CEO and partner at Smart Real Estate Coach, where all we do is buy and sell real estate through creative financing. So that's lease options, sub twos, owner financing. My family and I, we built a small, originally a small family investment company coming out of the 2008 crash, where my father-in-law originally engineered it, came together as a family, started doing a bunch of deals. And then we started then teaching people across the country how to do that exact same thing. And now we do real estate deals with students across the country in 80 plus markets right now and just continue to grow and help people, especially with this window of the market. This window of the market is rather important for anybody in the creative financing niche is a major opportunity. We're not going to see these types of opportunity more than once or twice, maybe in a lifetime. So it's a big window or a short window for us to do some big things. And how many students do you guys have now? Yeah, we're about 120 to 140 strong across the United States. So actively doing real estate deals with as we lock arms in the trenches and help them buy real estate deals from you know the first phone call all the way to you know the actual closing that happens sometimes one, two, three, five years down the line. So we work with them the life of the deal and help these students, primarily people that are in a W-2 job that are looking to build a company in order to escape their current job and really helping them build that portfolio to create that entirely new lifestyle. I love it. I love it. Let's dive right into this sub two deal. For people that don't know, can you explain what sub two financing is when you're using these creative terms to acquire more real estate or control more real estate? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, out of the three methods, sub two, I actually believe is probably the most prevalent type of transaction with everything that's happening right now in the market. You have a massive opportunity because both the buyers and the seller sides are growing right now. Buyer side, our pool is growing because we work with buyers that cannot qualify for loans or not bankable. So with interest rates rising, it increases the amount of buyers that are not bankable because of their debt to income ratio, their credit score. People that could buy six months ago can no longer buy today. 
But then you also have a dramatic portion of people that were affected by COVID as well. So their credit's down and they're still looking for the path to homeownership. And then on the seller side, you have similar situations that are happening. Because interest rates are rising, properties are sitting on the market longer. Sellers have unrealistic expectations because houses that were selling six months ago were at a significantly higher price. And now that the price, now they've been sitting on the market for a longer time and they're not getting the price that they want. So there's price drops in dramatically in some certain areas. And then on top of that, you have people, it's roughly 10 million people are in pre-foreclosure right now and growing. So now there's this other portion of sellers out there that are in a financially bad position and they may lose all of their equity and go into foreclosure if somebody doesn't come and help them. So this is actually a similar situation to what I just described there with the deal we're going to talk about here. So When we talk about buying a property subject to their existing loan, it just means that you are approaching a seller that has debt on the property, that has a mortgage, and are going to close on it. Title is now going to transfer to your company, and then the mortgage will still remain attached to the seller's credit. You are just contractually obligated to continue to be making those payments because now you have title and you're going to continue to help that seller go through whatever you know current challenge that they're going through and help them be able to walk away on a much easier basis if they went through a traditional market. And is there a specific type of loan that can be assumed by a new buyer or does it matter? Well, loans can be assumed, some of them, but I'm not suggesting that the investors out there assume those loans because an assumption would then make, we'd make an assumption that we would actually need to go through credit or to have a bank pull our credit to potentially put down a down payment, whatever that may be, you're going to get bank financing because now they have to approve your assumption of that loan. Okay. What okay. I'm suggesting is that the loan remains attached to that seller. You are just paying for the seller. Got it. Okay. And that can happen with any type of loan because it's that's a private agreement between the seller and the buyer, right? Yeah, absolutely. So that could help. You could do it with any type of loan we have. I know that some of like the FHA loans, you just want to be careful at first if they're within the first 12 months because they're a lot more likely that they may call a loan due because they're more looking for it, I would say, even though we still have never had a loan call due on our end. And then also I would stay away from reverse mortgages as well, as that's stating that the seller has to live in the property while they have their reverse loan. And they check that every 12 months. So I would stay away from that in general. But past that, I mean, any loan out there, we've done it with. We've done a VA loans, conventional loans, FHA loans, you name it. Because at the end of the day, what you're doing is you're, especially a seller that's in a challenging situation, you're actually catching up their arrears potentially. You're making payments for them on time. The seller's credit may even go up because you're making payments for them. It's attached to their credit. And as long as you're making payments, then the banks are not out there looking to call loans. What they're looking to do is collect interest on the mortgages they create. Right, right. So for this deal specifically, and you don't have to go into too much detail here, but you said there was a financial challenge on the seller. Yes. Maybe give an example for this one or what you see most often when you do these sub two deals. Yeah, I'll walk you through this deal. It's a deal I actually did personally. It's in a great market up here. It's called Cape Cod, Massachusetts. Most people have heard of it. If you've ever watched like any of the Cape Cod League baseball, yeah. like summer pitch back in the day. Yeah, I love it. So we bought this property and the seller, when I approached the seller, the seller was currently... They're about to go through a divorce. The wife I was communicating with at the beginning, the husband eventually came into the picture later. 
when we approached the seller, they just expired off the market. So they're with a realtor and then the property expired. Now I reach out as an investor because that's one of our lead sources. I reach out as an investor and I start a conversation to see what's happening with the property. I then start to discover all these things through my due diligence, but it's not like the seller openly was telling me, hey, I'm in a challenging situation. So I'm speaking with the seller and her and her husband at the time, they you know, kind of wanted to make a last hurrah. So they moved in together, they got credit cards from Home Depot, and what they did is they fixed up the house. So the house is in great condition. But the challenge is now they have credit cards, and now her and her husband are fighting, and now they're trying to get a divorce, and now they're missing mortgage payments. So I'm having this conversation with the seller, and I'm kind of doing my due diligence on the end, and I'm about to actually fly out to Texas. So what I do is I send her one last email, because it wasn't like we were at the point where I was gonna visit her house yet, I sent her one last email and just was like, hey, I'm not seeing you know the comps that prove the house is worth X and it expired. You just tell me what the lease you're willing to take on this property. So they always said, I left, went to Texas, came back like three days later, and she had a slew of emails where she was just talking herself down through the entire time. So we ended up buying this property at 355. It was on the market at one point at 425. That's eventually what we sold it for. But we Buy for three fifty five with an installment sale. So not only is this a sub two, we're gonna, we're gonna throw some more stuff in here. An installment sale would simply mean that we're gonna close on the property, but there's still installments due after we close on it. So we bought this property for like three fifty five. They really just wanted their credit card debt to be paid off. I think it was like twenty something thousand. We agreed to end up paying. I think it was like twelve or fifteen. So what we did is we created three equal payments of it over the course of the next three years. After we bought the house, we then would just send them like a $6,000 payment once a year. With that, the house was also behind about $4,200. So it was two payments behind. We caught up that payment, closed on it, paid closing costs. Then at that point in time, so we had a house, we're all in about $355 or $360. Now, most of our deals we do are no money down it's just or just closing costs. But you know, when you get a good deal, you get a good deal. So we went ahead and we did that. And then what we ended up doing is we ended up turning around and we sell everything through rent to own. So what we did was we ended up selling this property to a rent to own buyer for $425,000. So we increased it by roughly $69,000. And that's what the property is on the market for originally. So it was an easy sell. It wasn't even like we were at the top of the market. Our monthly payment on that property, because when we bought it, Sub two, we were just we were just making the monthly payment of what we currently was on that house. It was about two thousand dollars a month. We were collecting twenty five hundred dollars a month from our buyer. Our buyer also came in with forty one thousand dollars down, so ten percent down. Moved into the house. We sold it on a thirty month lease purchase or rent to own with ten percent down. We now were collecting roughly four hundred dollars a month, four seventy three a month, which turns out in that twenty nine month agreement, it's about thirteen thousand. During the course of that lease, we ended up collecting about $16,000 in principal pay down because we were getting roughly $569 a month. And I arrived at that by, and I know if you're listening to this podcast, it's not like you have all these numbers in front of me. So the $2,000 a month payment, that was principal interest taxes and insurance. The $569 was the principal that was coming directly off of principal. That was the principal portion of that payment. I know that over the course of you know, three years, the amortization schedule would change and the five, you know, that 569 would be higher, but we just used an average of when we first got it. So that's 16,000. Our buyer was originally supposed to cash this out within 24 months. I mean, within 29 months. So 
If it just stayed within 24 months, we had roughly $44,000 in equity that was built in that property because there was still premium left over and there was principal pay down. The cool part about the way we structure our deals is that we have the ability to, because we have ownership, to now create a new mortgage on the property. We actually end up selling this property to that buyer after they made all their payments on time, their monthly payments. We had the ability to now create a new mortgage on that that would service the current mortgage and our spread. And that current mortgage on the property that we took over was about 3% interest rate or 3.5. We sold it for a 7.5% interest rate. So we get a good spread of like, I don't know, almost $2,000 a month on this deal. And if like, she's currently in this right now. So if she cashes this out in the next three years, it's like an additional, I think $60,000 added to our total profit, which our total profit just on the 29 months was 95,000. And now here's a word from our sponsor. Get things done while you're on the move. Learn more about working with a virtual assistant through offsite professionals. It's a great way to get all the things done that you need to get done. Have freedom in your time and streamline your life by automating your business. Stop spending time on the tasks that you can delegate and start spending more time on your superpower. Call us today at 503-446-3177 or visit our website at offsiteprofessionals.com. Uptown Syndication is now offering a syndication coaching program for you to take your real estate portfolio to the next level. This is your opportunity to have experienced syndicators, AJ and Chris Shepard, coach you on your way to controlling your real estate investing future. Our coaching program will provide you with the tools and framework needed to begin syndicating real estate in your target market. Go to uptownsyndication.com today to learn more. All right, we got to dissect that a little bit. There's a lot hey, of you numbers. Told me you there. only want to do this for like five minutes and then I threw a major <laughs> deal. I'm happy to let's continue to dissect it. Okay. Because, like you said, there's a lot of numbers being thrown out and a lot of different you know, quote unquote, revenue streams or income yeah. streams from one deal, the yeah. way you guys do it. So there's no down payment out of your pocket. Obviously you talked about some credit cards and whatnot, and you yeah. have a set price. You have your price to purchase or, you know, subject to purchase. And then when you sell it on a lease option, does that down payment that the new buyer tenant, you know, deposit, does that go towards anything or is that just in yeah. your pocket? No, great question. So the deposit, we actually do it at a formal lease signing because when you're collecting about 10% down, so it's sourced. So that way it can be at some point in time because typically with these deals, we are now bringing them to a mortgage lender by the end. So that way they can then qualify for a loan. We happen to be able to you know, become the bank in this deal. So we source it first and foremost. So that way the attorney collects the money and then distributes it. That non-refundable deposit is credited towards the purchase price when they exercise their option. So in this case, when we create a new mortgage, it was credited because it's the down payment of that property. If for some reason that buyer defaulted in the lease purchase agreement, it was non-refundable. So it just, you know, it's staying hip national bank. So that's what's credited. The monthly payment though, is just pure rent, at least in the 29 month original agreement. Right. Okay. And so you said that did you guys basically carry the contract, create a new mortgage, or did they have to, or did you have to have to go get a new mortgage for the property? No. So what we great question. So what we then did is we got with our attorney and we said, hey, we want to create a new mortgage that we are the mortgage holders. So now we're the bank. And that mortgage will be created in such a way that it's now at 7.5% interest on the remaining balance of what she owes to us. 
that mortgage that so the collection of that mortgage will also service the original loan. It's also known as like a wrap mortgage is one way you can construct it. We happen to do it through like a contract for deed because we want it to be an easier way for us to handle a default. We could go right to foreclosure versus having to deal with the Massachusetts laws and pass through all the traditional ways of foreclosing on a property in Massachusetts. So yeah, just a new mortgage was then created where now she holds title, the buyer now holds title on where the bank. Okay. Okay. And then I'm trying to wrap my head around. So I understand the loan aspect now yep. that the new mortgage that, that was created, the mortgage that you were paying off from the previous sellers yep. was still in effect. That was still open, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's still there. Absolutely. Yeah. It wasn't paid off. It wasn't like we now created. Nope. So the new loan, that's why they, so when I use terms like a wrap mortgage, they call it a wrap mortgage because what you're doing is you're wrapping the current mortgage with a new mortgage. Right. So now it's like the 7.5% payment comes in, 3.5% of that payment goes to pay the initial mortgage. So that way that mortgage is staying current. Mm-hmm. And then we take the Delta. Okay. Okay. And then- Same with the amortization schedule. So what's happening is there's a higher mortgage balance than we currently have on the mortgage. So as this amortization schedule, the new mortgage continues to go down, this one's accelerating because it's much older. So the spread will actually increase a lot more over time. And at some point in time, if this lady never pays us off, that mortgage of rent will be paid off. And now it's just pure cash flow. Right. Okay. That makes sense. And then, but you guys set terms or, you know, a length of that you're going to hold this lease option. If for some reason the buyer slash tenant, the one that's going to, you know, could exercise a lease option, if they don't exercise the option, they just stay as a tenant. Yeah, great question. So let's hypothetically say that this lady, instead of us going all the way to the route of financing, are defaulted. At that point in time, there's really two pieces when it comes to our agreements is the lease, and then there's the purchase rider. And really, what you're doing is so you have the lease is what's telling them, like, hey, this is your monthly payment. This is you have to take care of all the property. Here's the terms of that lease. And then there's the purchase rider that's attached to it that basically says, hey, you have the option to purchase the property at this price for this period of time. So if somebody defaults on their option, meaning they don't make payments towards their option, because some of our deals, let's say they put down, like this lady put down 41000 some of our agreements will also state they need to put down more money over the course of their lease in order to help them. So like, for example, if somebody is going to go need to go get a jumbo loan in an area, and it's very likely they're going to need to put 20% down, if somebody came in with 10%, we would structure the agreement to eventually get them to 20%. So that way we can help them actually become successful in this transaction. So if they messed up on or they did not pay or defaulted on those payments, then their option to purchase the property would be a default, which means they would no longer have the ability to complete that option. They would have what we would consider like a 10-day to cure, which means they'd have 10 days in order to figure out how to cure that and get it back in good standing. Right. If somebody were to miss or not pay their rent or their lease, then now we're dealing with an eviction because now it drops back to tenant laws. That's why actually the lease option in most states is, or why we sell rent to own in most states is because the eviction process is a lot easier than the foreclosure process. If you're in like states like, let's say Texas, that's why most people in the state of Texas, when they buy creative, they're selling them on wraps. They're selling them like they're being the bank. Because the foreclosure process is like 60 days in the state of Texas. It's like faster 
to foreclose on somebody than it is to evict them. There's strategy attached to different ways on why you would sell properties a certain way. And that's why creative financing is the best. And that's because there's so many options for you to use, which means that you can get strategic on whatever state you're in, whatever county you're in, in order to really maximize your profits and also maximize your protection. You know, I might have to explore this whole coaching program because Oregon is difficult for the eviction side of things. I don't even know what sure. the foreclosure side of things is. So sure. I'd, it'd be interesting to dive into that. We've done some deals in Oregon because we have students that are in Vancouver, Washington. So they're right on that Portland, Oregon line. Mm-hmm. But yeah, no, I'd be happy to help. So then when, let's say, you know, the lady gets all the way through, she's at month 30. I think yep. that's, you said it was a 30 month lease option. Yeah. So she's at month 30. If she doesn't exercise the option at that point, because maybe she just needs more time. Sure. Is there extensions that can be added to this deal? Yeah. I mean, we're dealing with people. So let me say this. Like, There's typically wiggle room if you're doing it correct. Let me say this. However you buy it determines how you can sell it. So in this way, we bought it sub two. So we had no end date. Like we can hold on to this property for the rest of eternity. If somebody doesn't buy it, we can just keep it. If you're buying a property, say on owner financing or a lease option, and you have a specific end date, like maybe you have a 60 day or 60 month balloon, like you have a five year balloon. All right, then how you sell it is going to, you need to be more strict on that, which means that, yeah, you could give some extensions to this lady, but you would want everything probably done within the 48 month window, just in case you need to go back to the traditional market or you needed to go back and renegotiate with the seller. You want to give yourself some leeway. So however you buy it is going to determine how you can sell. So that's why you said sub two is the best option because you, in theory, could hold it forever. Yeah. Sub twos and owner financing are definitely the best options. We did a lot of lease purchases at the beginning of our career, and that's because they're really easy to get into. Those are like the no money down deals. That's you're not dealing with transferring title. It's really easy to communicate with a seller and say, hey, guess what? You're going to stay on title. I'm just going to structure X, Y, and Z. And worst case, now you get your house back versus I want to close on it. Here's how we're going to close. Here's the, you know, we have to go through more likely attorneys and it's just, it's a little bit more complicated, I should say, but you get way more benefits to it, right? Like you get tax benefits. You, so it's not, you know, it's not active income. You can do owner draws on the property. So there's a lot of that tax benefits that's associated with it. And also you get depreciation and ownership, which means you get a lot more control over the deal versus a lease option. So we always strive towards so when we're helping a student grow, we're, yes, we're solving seller's challenges and whatever option is an option, a good deal is better than no deal. But also over time, we're strategically looking at, hey, instead of doing 20 lease option deals, why don't we just focus on like 10 or 12 sub twos? Because they're going to pay out a lot more, you're going to have a lot more control, you're going to get tax benefits from it. So we can strategically work their long-term plans with their portfolio. Okay. When you were underwriting this deal specifically, I think you said you purchased it for three fifty five and ended yeah. up selling it lease option for four twenty five. Yeah. When you're underwriting these deals, what is a target return that you guys are looking for on a deal with these, you know, similar numbers? Yeah, that's a good question. The funny part is we don't have a typical return, meaning like that we're looking for. What we found is that the lowest amount of return we're getting is usually ten percent. And sometimes as high as 50 or 60%, depending on how we buy the deal and depending how long the time frame is in the term of that deal. But if we took all of them together, I mean, a 10% return would be great. So if you bought it for 425, you're getting 42,000. But the truth is on this deal, we got at a bare minimum, a $100,000 deal. 
because of the time frame we have and because of how we bought it. So this would be the, the way in which we approach our deals is a holistic approach. We look for our, a holistic portfolio. And I mean by that is there are some deals that you're going to buy that are going to require a buyer to have a really large down payment, 10, 20%. Like we just did a deal with a student who's up in New Hampshire. They collected $90,000 on a $600,000 house. It was a brand new construction deal. It just happened to be right near a trailer park, but there was a lot of activity because it was brand new construction. So we are able to, that required a large down payment in order for us to put a buyer in the house. So there's some deals like that. And then there's some deals that have great cash flow, but, and there's some deals that have almost no cash flow. And there's some deals that have great principal pay down, and there's some deals that don't. So we look at it as a holistic approach to say, all right, let's just do a bunch of good deals, the best deals that we can get. Let's ensure that we have some of our portfolios got good cash flow, some of it's getting large down payments, and some of it's building a ton of equity. And we approach it that way because if we can't solve the problem of the seller first and foremost, then we don't get a deal. So we focus on that first, then the best structure of the deal. And then we look at if it's something we want to take over the long term. That makes sense. Long answer to a simple question. <laughs> well, no, and it's the answer makes sense because you're not looking for, I need to make $40,000 or the deal doesn't work. You're looking at how can I build a portfolio of a bunch of different types of deals that are all going to be profitable in the end. Yeah, it's not like a multifamily 1% rule. It's not that it's like that rule of thumb. We're looking for, because we we do creative financing, we're looking for challenges that most people can't solve. And most of them have nothing to do with the real estate. These are nice properties of real estate. It typically has to do with the seller and their motivation. And just sometimes the traditional market can't provide that solution. That's a great point that you just made. Because when I was talking with Chris, he said that, and I asked, I was like, are these properties beat up? Do you have to go in and renovate them? He said, most of the time they're not, which for me is a foreign concept because I buy a lot of beat up properties and then make yeah. them nicer. Yeah. It's If there was a situation that a property was dilapidated and the seller was having some trouble, is that a deal that you guys would look at? And I know this is kind of off track, but it's a curiosity question. No, yeah, that's okay. It wouldn't fit with us because we're not, I mean, the, the, funny thing, the heaviest thing that we carry is a pen, right? It's like, that's on our model. There are lots of people in which we now partner with at a big level that they focus on fix and flips and wholesale deals and the exact similar thing. And they are now seeing that they're throwing away deals that don't fit inside their buy box because it doesn't fit inside a cash sale. And that's where somebody like yourself can really benefit. It's, oh, how many people am I throwing away right now because there's no equity in it? It's 100% equity and somebody won't take 60 cents on the dollar. And then changing it to a creative financing deal, which provides sometimes a better solution, like somebody's price or somebody can walk away with a house and like a property that has no equity in it. Like what's their other alternative? You're their best alternative as a creative financing buyer. So that, and then to circle back around and answer your question, that is, can you use creative financing to buy dilapidated houses? Yeah, sure. You can. You don't have to go get a bank loan. You don't have to go get hard money. What you just be doing is just using whatever capital you need to improve the house and then eventually you could either refinance or sell that property. So you, it requires less capital because the seller may be willing to hold a mortgage or you may be able to just take over the current mortgage. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm going to have to visit the website when we're done here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You, just, you can just take down my cell after this and you can look at stuff and hit me if you need me. Okay. Is there anything else you want to talk about with you know the Cape Cod deal specifically? Is there anything... Obviously, there was a bunch of nuances and the deal was pretty interesting. But is there anything specifically with this deal that 
you know, kind of stood out from other deals? Yeah, great question. When I look back on this deal, the deal became a really good deal because of patience. And it was accidental patience. It was, I was prospecting and then I had somewhere to go and I didn't remember to tell them that I wasn't going to be there for a couple of weeks or, <laughs> or say three or four days. I assumed I would be on my computer and then I ended up at a conference and then I just never did. So by the time I got back, it was like she talked herself all the way down. So the lesson of the story is just like, as long as you're patient, what happens is people's motivations or how urgent people are, are going to come out. Because once you've established that you're a buyer, they're now looking for how you, they can buy or how they can sell the property to you. So I was just, you know, it was accidental patience. I wish I had, you know, I wish I could say I did something magical, but all I did was just didn't talk and let her talk for a little bit. So I would encourage a lot of us to do more of that. And I know how hard it is when we're either first getting started or we're in the trenches, especially if it's not forced. And that's because we're trying to do deals consistently and bring in more revenue and do the next one, the next one, the next one. But if we can practice some accidental patience, I think that'll put us in a strong position to get better deals. Awesome. I love it. Do you want to mention anything about your books? Because you are a three-time best-selling author. <laughs> I'm a co-author, but yes, I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah. I would just encourage anybody that's listening to the podcast, if you got a ton of value or if you're interested in creative financing, go to wickedsmartbooks.com forward slash win. It's just wickedsmartbooks.com forward slash win. And we'll ship you out our Amazon bestselling book, a package. The main one that we're going to send you along with maybe some other stuff is Real Estate on Your Terms. That was our first Amazon bestselling book. It really outlines this model and how our trademark three payday system works and why we're able to help so many people you know, currently escape their jobs and or add this to their current business model. So I encourage you to do that next step and then we'd be happy to chat with you. Awesome. Zach, thanks so much for your time today and going over this deal with us. Again, check out wickedsmartbooks.com slash win. And we're excited for this episode to come out. Thanks, my man. Appreciate your time. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Real Estate Professionals Investing Podcast on Win, your community of investing knowledge for growth. We hope that this episode has increased your knowledge and added value to your path to freedom. If you would, please take a second to rate us so that we can get more great investors to interview. If you or someone that you know wants to be on, please visit westsideinvestors.com and fill out our form to be on the show. Thank you again and enjoy your day.